Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Today's podcast is the first half of our annual panel discussion at Westminster Theological Seminary's Preaching Conference. We'll unfortunately have to keep you guessing how it ends for a few weeks. And, and just as a follow-up on that, what is your, what is your favorite kung fu movie? <laughs> I, I have no concept that there is such a thing. Oh, well, I'm very sorry to hear that. <laughs> it, it should be Enter the Dragon, if you ever ask that one again. Uh, I've never heard of kung fu movies. Okay, David, you're not helping yourself here at this point, so (laughs) move right along. Question on preaching the Old Testament, David. Uh, Some years ago, I I preached through the book of Judges, and one of the big challenges I found in the book of Judges was, you know, sure, we want to point to the fact that each judge fails, and that points us to the great judge who doesn't fail, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're preaching 20, 30 sermons through a book of the Old Testament like that, how do you avoid just sounding the same week after week after week. How do you keep it fresh when, you know, the obvious application is, well, Samson failed, but don't worry, Jesus succeeded. How do you avoid that kind of repetitive tedium in an Old Testament book? Well, one of the tools you're mentioning in the Old Testament is the typological fulfillment of Christ and therefore picking up on a key individual and running that through each week. The Old Testament, though, is it's a lot richer than that. Let me see if I can explain. The Old Testament doesn't only point to Christ. It also demonstrates a pattern of life for those who are following Christ. Let me give you an example. You mentioned judges, but let's take Joshua right next to it. They're going into the land. Who's the first recipient in the book of God's gracious provision for the inheritance? Well, it's actually somebody who's already in the land. It's Rahab. Who's the first recipient of God's gracious decree where he's going to overthrow and kill everyone that's in the land? Well, it's actually those wily Gibeonites who have deceptively found themselves under a covenant of grace. Who's the first person who's given an inheritance for the land? Well, it's actually Caleb, not Joshua. He's last. And Caleb, if he's the Kenizzite, according to what we have in Genesis, might have actually been an outsider who attached himself to the people of God. What the Old Testament is showing, by way of pattern, is that the outsider gets in first, uh, which Jesus then demonstrates when the kingdom actually comes. Take the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus doesn't merely point to Christ in the Passover, but who has actually preached the Passover narrative in Exodus 12 as an application for the pattern of life in the church regarding discipline? Well, actually, Paul did. Paul borrows on the unleavened bread of Exodus 12, the feast of the Passover, and applies it to a moral situation, using it as a metaphor to do discipline in the church where those are cast outside the community. Here's Paul looking at the Passover, and all we're doing is saying, look how it points to Christ. And Paul is actually drawing from it to do a pattern for Christian life within the community. The Old Testament is very rich. But now that preachers are on the track of trying to preach Christ from the Old Testament, 
we need greater variety, greater strength, uh, greater breadth, and I think a pattern for life is actually there. Uh, my question is more about um, in the local church, how important is it for um, for the pastor to have, you know, under the ministry of word and sacrament, to have good allies in discipleship, good Bible study teachers, um, small groups, and, and what does it take then to equip teachers in your church in that way to help under the ministry of word and sacrament? Well, so in the pastorals, the, the call is clear that the pastor is to be training and equipping men and women to handle the word in the context of the community of faith. That the pastor is concerned not only with the content of the gospel, but they are concerned with the continuance of that gospel which automatically means they are engaged in training people in the gospel for the purposes of perpetuating the faith. So if you take that as a model, then every local pastor should be, by nature of their calling, equipping people, men and women, to help other men and women through a ministry of the word that will enable them to grow strong and healthy lives. In our own church, we have community group leaders. Uh, they are men and women who serve in facilitating discussion on Sunday's sermon in small groups. We train them in the principles of exposition. So if you came to my church and you were part of the training for community group leaders, we're giving them the same training that we're giving pastors you know, through the Simeon Trust in different parts of the world. So there's an element of, of instruction that has to take place, training. There's an element of mentoring, uh, walking alongside we find that the Bible then becomes what Paul says to Timothy later. It is that which equips you for training in righteousness. So we're doing that at small group levels, elder levels, reading one-to-one levels. I think that's part of a sign of a healthy church. David, I was talking to you a little bit earlier, and, and one of the questions I like to ask pastors who've been pastoring for a while is, how do you deal with preaching through particularly uh, painful and challenging uh, seasons in your own life? How do you or how would you counsel young men being trained for the ministry to anticipate those times when perhaps it's a conflict in the church or a conflict in their home, and literally for a season of time, could be a long period of time, they are having to preach every week in the midst of being heavily burdened with things that they can't just, that they, they can't offload it. It's impossible for them to offload it yet, and they can't just pour it out before the congregation either because it wouldn't be appropriate to do that. Um, have you had times like that? And if so, how have you dealt with that? No, I haven't had any hard times at <laughs> all good to in hear. pastoral ministry. <laughs> well, I had to ask because yeah. you don't have any preferences on <laughs> kung fu movies. So I'm, at, this, at this point, I can't assume anything, David. <laughs> well, let me... Let me disclose something about myself to you, since we don't know each other well. I disclose very little about myself (laughs) to my congregation from the pulpit. I bear with my own frailties and difficulties. I am not of the opinion that the congregation needs to identify with those in order to feel that they have a pastor who can walk alongside them. That said, I am quite aware 
that every week I preach, I am preaching to a congregation that is under severe distress on a number of fronts, perhaps individually or collectively. And what I've found is just that the sequential, restrained commitment of opening the word to the best of my ability, rather than try to read the stress or the pressures of my congregation or myself in, actually holds me in gospel work. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching from Hebrews 8. I took as my uh, main uh, emphasis of the text these words. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Well, we all want Jesus to be here. We all want Jesus to be next to us. We all want Jesus to walk beside us. We all want Jesus to strengthen us. But what we really needed to know that week, personally, experientially for myself or others, is that we really needed Jesus who is not here. We needed Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. We needed Jesus who has finished his work. We needed Jesus who's not standing up, walking with, but one who has sat down at the right hand. And as the glories of the gospel then begin to shine, our actual temporal needs are met. My congregation doesn't learn about me from the pulpit. Um, My congregation learns about the rich resources they have in Christ from the pulpit. And uh, those who do get to know me, well, they're probably worse off for it. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt that. (laughs) I don't know. Does that help? Does that yeah, hit that, you? Yeah. That, that's, that is helpful. It's yeah. an answer. It may not be the one you no, need. No, no it's, it's good. I, I'm, I'm going to ask another one. You're going to interrupt you go. as usual. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. You just Carry lean on. back Carry a little on. bit. Uh, just relax, Carl. Um, <laughs> you, so, David, you, uh, you, you pastor in one of the largest cities in the country. You are in the shadow of University of Chicago, but you're also, the church is not in a, in a carefully protective enclave. You have a wide variety of people with very different backgrounds um, in your church. And this is actually for you also, Carl. Carl, you likewise, you pastor in the metropolitan area of one of the largest cities in the country, and similarly situated where you go down one road and you'd be in a, a very exclusive area, and then you just go a couple blocks in the opposite direction, and it would be a completely opposite uh, situation. Um, I'm in a university community, and on any given Sunday, I'll have heart surgeons and shelf stockers, evolutionary biologists sitting right there, as well as uh, someone who is, has been a farmer all of his life and everything in between. How do we do sermon preparation so that in each Sunday, uh, the biologist and the shelf stocker can hear well what we're saying? I look forward to Carl's answer on this. <laughs> it's about time he chime in, don't you think? I mean, this is his... Yeah. Oh, this is the longest time he's been silent, um, really in recent memory. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I've not, just decided I'm at the table now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, simple answer, one simple answer is simply preach the text. You know, that's the foundation. Allow the text to guide what you're saying. I would say, secondly, avoid technical jargon. And third, be aware of the different constituencies you have in your congregation. I think we want to avoid fragmenting the congregation too much. 
you know, ultimately the problem of the evolutionary biologist is the same as the problem of the man who sweeps the streets. The sinners in rebellion against God and they need to be reconciled to God. So there has to be, you know, one, one, I don't think one should get too perturbed about trying to speak to every single constituency. There is such a thing as universal human nature. And if you avoid jargon and preach the text, you will speak to that universal human nature in whatever instantiation it happens to take in your congregation. Having said that, it is useful, I think, to remember the profile of your congregation. Martin Luther has, there's a great table talk reference in Martin Luther where he mocks theological student because the theological student went and preached a sermon on the joys of childbearing. In, uh, <laughs> I think the, the politically correct term is extended care facility for older women. Uh, and Luther <laughs> pointed out that none of these women were ever going to bear children again. And the sermon completely missed. So I think being aware of the constituency you're preaching to, but preach the text, avoid jargon, and trust that the Holy Spirit will take that word and apply it to the people in front of you that day. I, I, I love that answer, and I, I think there's some biblical rationale for us to realize that we're not new in having to address the full panoply of life from the pulpit. So Ezra, it's very clear that when it comes and the word comes back to the community of faith, it's the men, it's the women, and it's all the children that can understand that the scriptures teach even children at the age of understanding are part of the worshiping community in regard to the word going forward. So in our church, if you're third grade, you're in all the way through the sermon. And I think that's part of the continuity of the generations of the, the church and Christian faith to be able to speak to a wide variety of needs. There's something wrong when the pastor goes into his study and to find application for his sermon merely closes his eyes, throws his nose to the ceiling, and says, now Sally Sue's going to be there, and she's got a bad case of acne. How is this sermon going to help her? I mean, you may have personal needs like that, but that's not the way you necessarily find application. You're better off opening your eyes, sticking them in the text, and asking yourself, what, what is the divinely given application that's sitting here in front of me? And letting the Holy Spirit then drive that home. This week, I had the warning passage in Hebrews on apostasy. And I knew that I had a lot of young people that had grown up in the church. Those are the ones that I'm fearful of, not, not only for myself. So there do, does come a time where you look at your congregation and you say, look, young people, high school, junior high, listening to me. You're the ones in danger of this warning because you're the ones who have tasted of the kindness of this community. We're not talking today to the people that are outside. So there is time for direct movement under the force of the scriptures. But the text itself usually, or the context, will be a derivative way in which you can find application for everybody. I'd also add as well that the, the post-service is important. I as soon as I've done the benediction, I rush to the, the back entrance so that I shake everybody's hand as they're leaving. When the kids go by, I crouch down to speak to the kids, so I'm looking at them at eye level. And I think making yourself available after the service so that if there is something you've said that's perplexed somebody or they didn't quite understand a word you used, you're available to, to explain after the sermon one-on-one. -on -one. I think pastors who disappear into their studies straight after the service and are not available for people that's not a good thing. You, you have to be available for interaction with your congregants afterwards and have to cultivate an atmosphere or a culture where they feel comfortable coming up and asking you about your sermons without feeling that you're going to take it as some lethal personal criticism that's going to ruin your personal relationship with them.
David, when you planted Trinity, given its location by the university, and you were much younger at that point, you're quite an aged man now, but w- <laughs> would, would you... Uh, what, Why? Was, did, was it intimidating, the idea that you would have professors? Did you feel pressure to, well, maybe I should use the word pericope at this point or something like that? Well, yeah, it was intimidating. It's a world-class institution. I grew up in a locker room, and I'm not equipped to, to address a number of the needs that the student body and faculty are engaged in. What I have found, though, to Carl's earlier point, that the, mo- the most genius person in the world, whether they be teaching in classics or astrophysics, they need a pastor, they need the love of Christ, they have children that have struggles, um, they, need, they need someone to walk with them. I have found that, and so my intimidation level has gone down and I also would say that I'm the beneficiary of those individuals who keep me growing and stretching, the ones that disagree with me vehemently, the ones that are not Christian, the ones that know so much more about the Bible than I do, and to be able to be a learner in those contexts. But yeah, it took some time to feel comfortable in my own skin in that context. Here's a question from... Uh one of the attendees. Uh, David, this is actually for all the panel, but I'll, I'll aim it first at David. David, you've written some materials for family worship. So I wanted to ask you all what materials, books you recommend for family worship and catechesis, and how do we best model it as ministers? Well, you're into a, a passion side of my interior world. Um, I'm still convinced that if we can win the six-year-old with the love of Christ, then we win the world for Christ. So I have devoted uh, a lot of my writing to the six-year-old or the three-year-old, um, and in particular to the parents who are raising them up. So when we began our church, we were committed to writing material where the dinner table was the center, and when you came to church, we were the supplement. So we started writing devotionals for families. I probably had eight or nine families with young children. I wanted to let them raise their children. We began that project. Um, so we started doing family worship. I'm, we, we didn't want them doing it seven days a week. There's not a guy in my church who would have led his family in devotion seven days a week. So we said three days a week. And if you can just three days a week, try to sit down with your family, your kids, and look them in the eye and read a passage of the scriptures and talk to them about it. That, that was our goal. What the fathers were telling me was it was going over the heads of the preschoolers. So then we, we got down to the preschool level. That's where things like the big picture story Bible got birthed. Um, that was four and a half years of serving five families in our church. The Lord's the one who's decided to take family worship materials and, you know, throw it into 13 languages and whatever. I mean, that, that's his deal. That was never my deal. But we do have devotions that help a family trace the the biblical theological line of the scriptures. We've just done something recently on the Westminster Confession of Faith that takes you three devotions a week through each of the different chapters. We've written catechisms for memorization. I have five children. Uh, I made the dinner table the centerpiece of my life. I got home for dinner. I didn't do a lot of things, but I did get home for dinner. 
And this, this actually is bearing fruit in the lives of my children and others. So I think that uh, I'm, I'm a firm advocate, and I'm a firm believer that the best material for children is yet to be written. There's a lot of people out here who should be writing material for children, particularly if you're the highest levels of theological and biblical acumen. You should put your sights on the five-year-old. That's where we need it. We don't have enough there. I'm rambling. That's good, though. Amy, you have any thoughts on that? That's just something I really appreciated when um, we came into our new church. We recently moved to Frederick, Maryland, and I noticed right away that my pastor could speak to my 11-year-old, my 14-year-old, and my 17-year-old, and my husband and I. And, you know, the different vocations that we are in, um, that he, in the middle of a sermon, he would say, teenagers, and they would perk up. Or sometimes he he makes noises, (laughs) you know, to illustrate what he's talking about, and my son perks up. Um, I can tell that he's thinking about everyone when he's preaching, and and another thing that he does that I think helps with family devotions is to have in the bulletin a devotion for each day based off the sermon. So that's really helpful because I think it's important to be able to talk about the sermon after we get home. And that's a guided way to be able to do that and then to cross-reference the other parts of Scripture that, that work well with that sermon. Okay, my question is for Todd. This comes from the audience. When is your next book coming out? Yes. And what is it on? Yeah, it's on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, no, (laughs) actually, I I was approached to to write a book on uh, infant baptism, kind of a bare knuckles, in in contrast to the, uh, well, I'm Presbyterian, and I know that means we baptize babies, and I know it's not really in the Bible, but but to actually have a, um, a, a, a very confident kind of a you silly Baptist approach um, to it. And so so the guy at the publishing house that asked me to do that said, would you be willing to do that? I said, yeah. And he said, uh, if you could write an introduction and then write a, a sample chapter and, and get that to us. And he said, either way, I'll have good news for you. Either the good news will be, hey, we, we like this and we do want you to go ahead. Or, hey, we've got good news. Your evenings really are going to be free. So we'll, uh, we'll see. I have a feeling it'll be the latter, but, uh, but we'll see. And then, I mean, the only reason I'm doing it is so that they can quit talking about all their books. Um, but, uh, you know. Well, and that people will get your name right. And that people will get my, my name right, because I live for that. I, uh, you, had a, you had an interesting question that was submitted, Carl. Yeah, on the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, this one's for the team, I think. Uh, you have made no comments on Benny Hinn's Trinitarian theology, wherein each person is three persons. Does that mean you endorse him, or are you just gearing up for that one? Yeah. Endorse. Well, I'd say if, if the Trinity has nine persons, then uh, one would have to say that, technically speaking, it's a non-entity, which doesn't exist. So uh, I would not endorse Benny Hinn on that one. Yeah, that would at least triple the submission that's going on in the Trinity. Too, yeah, so. yeah. Exponential problems. Yeah. So I would say, too, that um, there's a lot that we don't address, Yeah. but um, most of our readers aren't really tempted by Benny Hinn's theology. Yeah. yeah. But we're hoping that'll change. <laughs> um, oh, here's one. Here's one. This was, this was interesting to me. Uh, any suggestions for choosing books of the Bible or a particular series for preaching expositionally in a place like a, a retirement home where the majority of the congregation do not have 
an evangelical or biblical background. David, where would you tell someone to uh, to start if they are given an opportunity to minister regularly in a situation like that? Well, I think you can start anywhere. I mean, I think that's what you need to know. We all need the scriptures. I can tell you what we're doing right now this fall, experientially. We have a ministry weekly in a nursing home, and there's about 55 people that are coming. It's one of the favorite things I get to go to. Some of them haven't been outside of that home in seven years. They can't roll out. They come down on elevators from floors. The man who runs the ministry, who has been teaching it with me, thought we should do Ecclesiastes, which I thought was a terrible choice. (laughs) Because I'm thinking of this environment that we're walking into, and we walk into this most difficult book on the meaning of life, and how is this going to be uplifting. But he won out. And we're doing Ecclesiastes, and the people are loving it. And the Lord is enriching their fellowship with Christ. So I I don't have a good answer to that other than to say, if you give yourself to the Scriptures and and you pledge your heart to the people you're addressing, that's got to happen. Mike Bullmore's got that in the flyleaf of his Bible. Every time he speaks, at least he told me once he looked at it, first question, did I prepare well? Second question, did I pray well? Third question, have I pledged my heart to this people this week? If you've done those three things, I don't care where you open up the Bible. They're going to be nourished and fed and strengthened. All right, I have a, this is a tough question. I'm a female Bible teacher with an MDiv degree. My heart is for the local church. But there are a few jobs open for trained women in churches that hold to complementarian convictions. How can we encourage more churches to hire trained women Bible teachers? I think That's you've asked question. yourself a question there. So. <laughs> well, that was given to me to ask, but, um, you know, um, it's wonderful that this woman um, has an MDiv degree and that she's got that kind of equipping to be able to teach. However, if you're, if you're looking to be employed in that way in a church, I mean, the practical aspect is you have to go to a big church. There's, there's a lot of small churches that are good churches that will, would love to have equipped women Bible study teachers. You know, what church are you going to right now, as a matter of fact, could probably really use um, your skills and your passion to teach women, but I don't know that you can expect to be paid for it. Um, if you want to be paid as, as a skilled women's Bible study teach, teacher, um, your options practically are to, to look for a bigger church like Todd's <laughs> or um, to start writing, to start um, putting together some, some resources for women in churches to be better equipped to teach with because that is a real need in the church. And, and in that way, um, you know, you could be employed more on a parachurch level to be able to help many local churches. I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful and very much needed for churches with complementarian convictions to invest in women and to have good teaching for women. And, and I travel and, and speak in different Reformed churches, and I, I see that need. And I see a lot of women who have the best of intentions and, and who are hungry for, for better theology in, in their women's groups. So um, I think this is wonderful. I think it's wonderful for a woman to, to have 
sought this degree, um, I think you need to be creative in how you would would want to use it then in a paid position. Mm-hmm. Can I can I jump in on that? Mm-hmm. Maybe to my own detriment. <laughs> I think the conservative Christian community is way behind the curve on this. Um, that's one. Uh, number two, I think every Christian man and woman should be equipped for ministry in the church. Number three, I think he's given both some men and some women the ability to teach, and they should be trained in the word for it. You may differ, we may differ on what are the right contexts for that, but I believe in that principle fundamentally. The other thing I think we need then to do is to begin equipping women to handle the word, at least along the lines of Titus, older women and younger women. I think you should flood the system with that training. I run the Simeon Trust. We're now doing six workshops a year in this country. Well, we just did one last week in Dubai, so I guess it's technically not this country. Five in this country, but around the world, training women to teach the Bible for other women. Uh, There'll be over 400 women go through those kinds of training through the Simeon Trust in this year. I think every pastor in this room ought to actually look at who you're paying in your church and why. Why is my male music director getting exponentially more money than my women's volunteer or very small stipend children's director? Why is that? There needs to be a writing of the scales, a pushing of the envelope, and equipping for the church. And that can all be done in your most conservative context probably won't be go over well with I don't know who's listening to your podcast but and, we don't uh, and I'm helpful I'm, you want to edit that <laughs> thank out thank you for That's saying fine. that no. but if you want to keep it in I, I don't really care no, I'll, we've I'll made enough enemies David that'll go that'll just confirm some people's suspicion of us anyway so that's fine no but invest in your women invest in yeah. your women they make up more than half of the church and you're kidding yourselves if you don't think they have a huge influence on everyone in there that actually brings me to a uh, my next question, which is specifically aimed at Amy. Amy, what's it like being the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's Beth Moore? <laughs> it's a huge disappointment to those who like Beth Moore. Um, and it's, I get paid a lot less than Beth Moore and have a lot less followers. I think Todd and I would agree that you are a huge disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so for bad. confirming that. So bad. Wow. <laughs> David, would you like to weigh in on that? Well, no. um. I can tell two things. I, I don't know the three of you. I'm the outlier here. But Amy Bird evidently is strong enough to not take herself too seriously and wise enough to not take them too seriously. <laughs> Ouch. That's about right. <laughs> she has combat training. And so that's Carl and I are actually quite frightened of her. Are you ready? Thanks for listening to the first half of the discussion. Be sure to listen in two weeks to see how it all ends. But right now you can go to the website and sign up for a chance to win several copies of Expositional Preaching, How We Speak God's Word Today by David Helm, who's been our guest. Please also remember that we're donor-supported. All financial gifts are appreciated. Please visit the website to make a donation. 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... This book is for the local church. Right. And so two church officers, I just ask that, ask that you read it and that you would then be motivated um, to invest in the women in your church. You know, if, if nothing else, you, you have a, a woman writer out there who can skillfully explain the, the, your role as a pastor and an elder to the people who are reading her books and the role of the ministry of the word. It's very well done and I think will help you in, in your role as an elder. That interview is next time. Join us then. Doing my best Anglican voice. Uh, today's podcast is the first half. <laughs> See, that's English humor. I don't get it. Yeah.